I was forced into an exercise of civility, which I would ordinarily abhor. Emerson had designs on a barrow on the property of Sir Harold, and as he elegantly expressed it, it was necessary for us to butter up Sir Harold before asking permission to excavate. It was Emerson's own fault that Sir Harold required buttering. I share my husband's view on the idiocy of fox-hunting, and I do not blame him for personally escorting the fox off the field when it was about to be trapped, or run to earth, or whatever the phrase may be. I blame Emerson for pulling Sir Harold out of his saddle and thrashing him with his own riding crop. A brief, forceful lecture, together with the removal of the fox, would have gotten the point across. The thrashing was superfluous. Initially, Sir Harold had threatened to take Emerson to law. He was prevented by some notion that this would be unsportsmanlike. Seemingly no such stigma applied to the pursuit of a single fox by a troop of men on horseback and a pack of dogs. He was restrained from physically attacking Emerson by Emerson's size and reputation, not undeserved, for bellicosity. Therefore, he had contented himself with cutting Emerson dead whenever they chanced to meet. Emerson never noticed when he was being cut dead, so matters had progressed peacefully enough until my husband got the notion of excavating Sir Harold's barrow. It was quite a nice barrow, as barrows go, a hundred feet long and some thirty wide. These monuments are the tombs of antique Viking warriors, and Emerson hoped to discover the burial regalia of a chieftain, with perhaps evidences of barbaric sacrifice. Since I am above all things a fair-minded person, I will candidly confess that it was, in part, my own eagerness to rip into the barrow that prompted me to be civil to Lady Harold. But I was also moved by concern for Emerson. He was bored. Oh, he tried to hide it. As I have said, and will continue to say, Emerson has his faults, but unfair recrimination is not one of them. He did not blame me for the tragedy that had ruined his life. When I first met him, he was carrying on archaeological excavations in Egypt. Some unimaginative people might not consider this occupation pleasurable. Disease, extreme heat, inadequate or non-existent sanitary conditions, and a quite excessive amount of sand do mar, to some extent, the joys of discovering the treasures of a vanished civilization. However, Emerson adored the life, and so did I, after we joined forces, maritally, professionally, and financially. Even after our son was born, we managed to get in one long season at Saqqara. We returned to England that spring with every intention of going out again the following autumn. Then our doom came upon us, as the Lady of Shalott might have said. Indeed, I believe she actually did say so. In the form of our son, Ramses, Walter, Peabody, Emerson. I promised that I would return to the subject of Ramses. He cannot be dismissed in a few lines. The child had been barely three months old when we left him for the winter with my dear friend Evelyn, who had married Emerson's younger brother, Walter. 
From her grandfather, the irascible old Duke of Chalfont, Evelyn had inherited Chalfont Castle and a great deal of money. Her husband, one of the few men whose company I can tolerate for more than an hour at a time, was a distinguished Egyptologist in his own right. Unlike Emerson, who prefers excavation, Walter is a philologist, specializing in the decipherment of the varied forms of the ancient Egyptian language. He had happily settled down with his beautiful wife at her family home, spending his days reading crabbed, crumbling texts, and his evenings playing with his ever-increasing family. Evelyn, who is the dearest girl, was delighted to take Ramses for the winter. Nature had just interfered with her hopes of becoming a mother for the fourth time, so a new baby was quite to her taste. At three months, Ramses was personable enough, with a mop of dark hair, wide blue eyes, and a nose which even then showed signs of developing from an infantile button into a feature of character. He slept a great deal. As Emerson said later, he was probably saving his strength. I left the child more reluctantly than I had expected would be the case, but after all he had not been around long enough to make much of an impression, and I was particularly looking forward to the dig at Saqqara. It was a most productive season, and I will candidly admit that the thought of my abandoned child seldom passed through my mind. Yet, as we prepared to return to England the following spring, I found myself rather looking forward to seeing him again, and I fancied Emerson felt the same. We went straight to Chalfont Castle from Dover, without stopping over in London. How well I remember that day. April in England, the most delightful of seasons. For once it was not raining. The hoary old castle, splashed with the fresh new green of Virginia creeper and ivy, sat in its beautifully attended grounds like a gracious dowager basking in the sunlight. As our carriage came to a stop, the doors opened and Evelyn ran out, her arms extended. Walter was close behind. He wrung his brother's hand and then crushed me in a fraternal embrace. After the first greetings had been exchanged, Evelyn said, But of course you will want to see young Walter. If it is not inconvenient, I said. Evelyn laughed and squeezed my hand. Amelia, don't pretend with me I know you too well. You are dying to see your baby. Chalfont Castle is a large establishment. Though extensively modernized, its walls are ancient and fully six feet thick. Sound does not readily travel through such a medium, but as we proceeded along the upper corridor of the south wing, I began to hear a strange noise, a kind of roaring. Muted as it was, it conveyed a quality of ferocity that made me ask, Evelyn, have you taken to keeping a menagerie? One might call it that, Evelyn said, her voice choked with laughter. The sound increased in volume as we went on. We stopped before a closed door. Evelyn opened it. The sound burst forth in all its fury. I actually fell back a pace, stepping heavily on the instep of my husband, who was immediately behind me. The room was a day nursery, fitted up with all the comfort wealth and tender love can provide. Long windows flooded the chamber with light, a bright fire, 
guarded by a fender and screen, mitigated the cold of the old stone walls. These had been covered by panelling, hung with pretty pictures, and draped with bright fabric. On the floor was a thick carpet strewn with toys of all kinds. Before the fire, rocking placidly, sat the very picture of a sweet old nanny, her cap and apron snowy white, her rosy face calm, her hands busy with her knitting. Around the walls, in various postures of defence, were three children. Though they had grown considerably, I recognised these as the offspring of Evelyn and Walter. Sitting bolt upright in the centre of the floor was a baby. It was impossible to make out his features. All one could see was a great wide cavern of a mouth, framed in black hair. However, I had no doubt as to his identity. There he is, Evelyn shouted over the bellowing of this infantile volcano. Only see how he has grown. Emerson gasped. What the devil is the matter with him? Hearing, how I cannot imagine, a new voice, the infant stopped shrieking. The cessation of sound was so abrupt it left the ears ringing. Nothing, Evelyn said calmly. He is cutting teeth and is sometimes a little cross. Cross? Emerson repeated incredulously. I stepped into the room, followed by the others. The child stared at us. It sat four-square on its bottom, its legs extended before it, and I was struck at once by its shape, which was virtually rectangular. Most babies, I had observed, tend to be spherical. This one had wide shoulders and a straight spine, no visible neck, and a face whose angularity...